Well, have any of you ever been uh, in a situation where that you've just been so frustrated with your friends and your relationships that you've come to the point where maybe you say, well, it's fine, I don't even need friends anymore. I, uh, I've had that a couple times in my life. I don't want to go too much into details because I'd be up all here right now and this isn't a group counseling session. So, But I've had times where I've come to the point where I said, oh, it's okay, I don't need any friends anymore. I've got me, I've got a great wife, and I've got Jesus, and that's all I need. And uh, I, I, God has kind of shook me at those times and realized, well, if all I had was Kirsten and Jesus, I, Jesus is very patient, but eventually I would drive Kirsten crazy. <laughs> because if all I had to talk about was, was work and family, it would drive her crazy. One thing that happened when I was in Bible college is I went in and I felt like I was struggling with relationships, but I had a prayer. I said, Jesus, just give me one good friend. And as soon as I started Bible college, I uh, encountered this guy and just circumstances brought us together. And he was in kind of the same place. And we're still really good friends. We talk uh, on an almost bi-weekly basis and we share life together in ways that I hadn't been able to with friends before. But uh, there's times that we go through struggles in relationships, in marriages, in friendships, in family. And we think, we just get frustrated and we think, that's it, I don't need... I don't need that hassle anymore. And so we, maybe we just isolate it. And there, uh, there's been a time when Karis and I, when we were in our previous church, where we were a part of a, a small group that we cared for one another so well that we, we saw what it's like to be part of the church the way it's meant to be. We cared for one another. We loved one another. We were all imperfect. We all made mistakes. And we didn't always get along. But we had times that we just cared for each other in such ways that it was just loving and great. And one of the basic human needs that we have is the need for a relationship. And uh, we have this need to be in community. But so often we run from it or we hide from it. Due to our own brokenness, it's difficult to be in relationship. Uh, so we're all sinful people and we're inherently flawed. So sometimes when we're in relationships, when we're in friendships, we make mistakes. Maybe we hurt the other person or they hurt us. And yet we get frustrated and we try and run away. Our inner pride says, I need more and I deserve better than what I'm getting from this person. Or, and the, the problem with that is if we're saying, I need more and I deserve better, the other person's inner pride is saying the same thing at that exact same moment. And so we drive each other apart. But our needs uh, to be wanted and to be loved and to be accepted can only be found outside of ourselves. No one of us is self-sufficient on ourselves. And actually, this example of community isn't just in humanity. God itself, God himself, is three persons in one. It is the Trinity. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there is no metaphor to make sense of this, because there's nothing like it in our world. But he is three per distinct people in one. And so that even God himself had community before humanity was ever created. And so we are made to be in community but one of the things that it takes to be in a relationship, and anyone with a friendship or with a marriage would realize that it takes work. It takes commitment. It takes time, uh, times when it's difficult, when you're struggling, that it takes a choice. That in, I'm going to stay in this relationship, even though right now I'm frustrated or I'm upset, like I am at this mic right now, but you know. 
but I know, and I know this will shock everyone because Karison and I are perfect, right? Because we're the pastor couple. But sometimes we don't agree on absolutely everything. It's really weird. But there are times when we actually disagree. And one of us is wrong usually. I won't say which one, but uh, Karison can tell you afterwards. And, but the times when we have these disagreements, when it's at its best, we calmly talk about the issue. We, we, don't, we attack the problem, not the person. We have, uh, we have good talks where we sort it out. We're reasonable. We chat together. Uh, but there are other times when we have uh, discussions. And, and Christians have discussions. They don't have fights because, you know, we're, we're always perfect. But we express our frustrations maybe in ways that aren't as healthy. Maybe uh, we, we have times where we share our thoughts, feelings in ways that aren't necessarily the best. But even these discussions at their worst are still, uh, are still important. Because if we don't actually share our frustrations, if we don't share our feelings, we don't share our hurts, then it's impossible to move forward. If we're not willing to share and do the hard work that it takes in a relationship, then you can't possibly move forward. And the one comfort that I have, no matter the, the depth of this, these disagreements that Karis and I have had, is that we know that we have a commitment to one another. We're not waiting for the other one to go, Am I, have I pushed them too far that they're going to run away? Because Karis and I are in a relationship that is a covenant. And we take that very seriously. When we stood up before uh, a group of God's people, our family and our friends, in a community, in a church, and we made vows to each other, it was a, a covenant that the two of us would do whatever it took to be together. That we would do whatever it took to be husband and wife for as long as we both lived. And that is not always easy. <laughs> because there are times when it would be easier to run away. A relationship, by its very nature, is a relationship between two imperfect people. What would happen in a relationship if one of the people was perfect? Just imagine what that would be like. So imagine if your spouse, and, and I'm not saying they're not, okay? So don't get offended right now. But what if your spouse was perfect, absolutely perfect? Now, anytime you had one of these disagreements, whose fault would it be? Anytime that maybe one of you was mad or angry or upset, whose fault would it be? Now, talk about, the, yeah, not the perfect one. It'd be the imperfect person's fault. It'd be the imperfect person's fault. That's a hard sentence to say. Whether or not, uh, whether or not your spouse is perfect this morning isn't the issue, but all of us have the opportunity to be in a relationship with someone who is perfect. But the issue with that is that we all have this inner sense of pride that we always have to be the one that's wrong in that situation. And that's difficult. When there's an issue that happens in our relationship between us and God, we know that he will never give up on us. We know that he's committed to us. But we always have to be the one that's apologizing. And that's hard in any relationship. But one of the beautiful things is that Jesus promised us that no matter what we do, say, or whatever, that Jesus is always with us. No matter what. Now, just before we even move on to anything else, I have lots of other points, but just let that soak in. What does it mean that there's nothing that you can do Nothing that you can do that would make Jesus stop loving you. There's no sin that you could commit. There's nothing that would make him stop loving you if you but repent. If you say, 
I'm sorry, Jesus, and you mean it, and you turn away from your sin, that he will always forgive you. And maybe in your relationships with your friends, with your spouse, maybe there comes a time when you think, maybe I've crossed the line. Maybe I've done something that's unforgivable. But with Jesus, that's never a question. There's nothing that you can do that if you repent and you turn back to him, that he will say, no, it's done. Too bad. Jesus is always with you. Now, I know that Christmas season isn't an easy time for everyone. Uh, I shared last week that it's hard for me with my family being uh, a a child of divorce, that there's uh, mixed uh, families, and so there's always a little bit of awkward intention. But one of the things that we can joyfully celebrate at Christmas time is that God is with us. That's been the the, the theme of this series, that no matter how life is going, no matter how painful or hurt you are at this season, you can rest in the promise that God is with you. And the great uh, joy of that hope comes out of Matthew 1.23. And uh, it says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What a beautiful thing, that God is with us. Now, over the last few weeks, we've looked at various things. We've looked at times when life gets hard, and it would be easy to doubt God's goodness and his presence We've looked at the depths of the valleys where suffering is, is hard, it's great, and every step is painful. We've looked at the wilderness where times when our strength is spent, we're at the absolute end and then something else happens and pushes us beyond our limits. And last week we looked at storms. And storms are the times in life when, uh, when there's chaos around you. Sometimes they're our own fault, their own mistakes, their own bad choices. But there are times that we're maybe in storms because we're there to help somebody else. And we're tossed about by circumstances and storms that are sometimes beyond our control. But the joy and the the promise is that God's with you in the valleys. God's with you in the wilderness. He's with you in the storms. And today we're celebrating that Jesus is with you always. And I think it's clear for anyone who uh, is a human being over the age of perhaps five or six, that something is not right with the world. It's about that age where we start saying, it's not fair. We recognize that the world is not as it should be. Now, it used to be better, and it used to work better. There's actually a time beyond memory when there was a time when humanity was actually in a good state, when the world was actually the, made, the way it was supposed to be. Uh, and we celebrate at Christmas time and at the gospel, and even as we just read in Matthew, that there was a time when Jesus came as God with us. But this isn't actually a new thing. In the time before time, there was actually a time when God walked among humanity each and every day. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, which were the first man and first woman in the Garden of Eden, they made a choice to rebel against God. He gave them one rule, don't eat it off this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they thought he was doing it, twisted by Satan's lies, in order to keep something good from them, where he was actually trying to protect them from themselves. But they chose to rebel against God. And this led to a break in their relationship with him. But we see up to this point that he was quite close. In Genesis 3, 8 to 10, it says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, I don't want to focus on the, the rebellion itself. I want to focus on the beauty that up to this point, God would regularly walk with them. In the garden, God would walk with them all the time. It says, during the cool of the day, he would walk with them. But now, because of their choice to rebel against God, God doesn't run away from them. They actually run away from God. They hide themselves, and they're afraid of God's presence. God who loves them, they're afraid of him. They're afraid of him because of what they've done. And God asks, where are you? Now, God knows everything, so I think that question is for their benefit, not his. He's giving them an opportunity to confess what they did. He doesn't demand it from him. He asks them. But they're ashamed, and they're afraid of him because of what they did. God asks, and so that they would confess this. So they needed to know and to own up to their mistake in order to rebuild their relationship. But this theme of broken relationship that starts here continues all the way throughout, throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament narrative, time and time again, even when he needed to discipline people, God would still promise his presence. Even when God had to discipline the whole nation of Israel for their disobedience, he still would come back and promise them to be with them. In Deuteronomy 31-6, to after Moses had died, God calls Joshua to step up and to lead. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of an act of anger and an act of aggression and frustration. But even then, he told him that he wouldn't be able to go into the promised land, but God made another way. He called somebody else to step up and to lead. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid because of them. That's, God, that's their enemies. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now never is a long time. Isn't that amazing? He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now God is doing his part in this bargain. God is there. God is with them. God will never leave them or forsake them. But human beings can still choose to run away. Human beings can still choose to hide. But you can't run away from God because he's right there waiting for you. But even with this, this theme of broken relationships, in the garden, when Adam and Eve uh, were there, who let them down? Did God let them down? Who let Adam and Eve down? Themselves. They were given the choice. So if anyone in this situation had the right to be upset, if this was a marital conflict, which one has the right to be upset right here? It would be God. You did this to me. I don't know if any couple has ever said that in history, but I always think of that in marriage. But you did this. This is your fault. But God doesn't do that. God is the one who comes to them. God is the one who comes but often, human beings, we're actually the one that's upset at God. We blame him. And I'll even admit this. I do this. If I'm upset, if, I'm, if I have done something wrong in my, in my relationship with Kirsten, usually I'm the one who gets mad <laughs> because I'm embarrassed. 
And so I try and find something to be mad at her about, but it's usually my fault. Now, I don't know if anyone else is willing to be that honest this morning. You don't have to say it out loud, but between you and Jesus and, and hopefully your spouse later, but there are times when we do something wrong, but we want to be the one that's upset. And we often do this in relationship with God. We'll blame him for things that aren't his fault. So we'll say, God, where are you? Where were you when this happened? God, where were you when, when this, when I made this bad choice? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? But all of the problems in the world weren't caused by God. They weren't created by God. They started in the garden with Adam and Eve choosing, I'm going to go my own way. I want to be my own God. I want what I want, and I want it, and that's it. And human beings have followed that pattern ever since. So we'll blame God for things like tsunamis. We'll blame God for things like floods. But the onus is on us. Not as individuals, but as a whole community of people that have rebelled against God. And it's interfered with the entire world. But since the fall, so many years ago, God has had a redemption plan, not only for the individuals, but for the whole world. And that redemption plan came in the form of a little Jewish boy named Jesus. This little baby. This little meek and mild baby born of a, a blue-collar family that had hardly any income. And his birth marked the entrance of God's presence truly among his people. In John 1, 1 and 14, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible is often called the Word because it's God's message for us. But Jesus is also called the Word because he is the message for us. He came in a way and spoke in such a way that he embodied and fulfilled the entire truth of the Bible. He is the culmination of everything in the Bible. He is the promised plan of God to save humanity. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the message from the Father for us. The message of hope, the message of love, the message of grace, and the message of truth. He was sent to guide us to salvation. Now, uh, for anyone that's familiar with, with Jesus' life, he spent 30 years studying, growing, learning, learning more about the Word of God, growing in wisdom and stature, it says in one verse, and just plain living as a blue-collar son of a carpenter. He was a human that would lived in uh, absolute obscurity in a small town called Nazareth that essentially the saying was, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It could go like, nothing good comes out of, I don't know, I don't want to offend anybody, Edmonton, let's say, I'm from there. <laughs> nothing good comes out of Edmonton. But, well, Edmonton's something, but... But nothing good comes out of there. And now, I don't know about you, but if I were to plan God coming to the earth and spending 30 years in obscurity... I certainly would have him doing more than three years of public ministry. Because that's a terrible ratio. It's a 10 to 1 of preparation versus ministry. But God's plans are often greater than ours. God's plans go beyond us. So sometimes we feel like I'm going through a season of suffering. I'm going through a season where of drought. 
I'm going through a season of hardship. And it may feel like it's been 30 years of nothing. But God may be preparing you for that three years of amazing ministry. He may be preparing you for that amazing three years of blessing. But Jesus, he came out of this small town of utter obscurity, came up to his cousin John the baptizer, and he was baptized. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And he began that three years of public ministry. But before he did, he spent 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness, with nobody else there. Just absolutely agonizing. I could only imagine being tempted by everything. But then after that, he spent that three years doing miracle after miracle, so many that they don't even bother writing them all down. He had powerful teaching, powerful preaching. He fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. He challenged authorities and conventions. And people kept waiting for him. This Messiah that had called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, they kept waiting for him to take over the throne of Israel and kick the Romans out. That's what they were waiting for. The Romans were the oppressors. They were the evil nation that had took them over, that was keeping them as prisoners, that was, uh, was doing horrible things to them, crucifying anybody that would rebel against them. But the kingdom that he came for was not a conventional one. The kingdom that he came for, he didn't care about an earthly throne. And the victory that he came wasn't over armies of human beings. It was over death. His victory was the victory over death, the power of sin and death in our lives. And that is far greater than they could have imagined. That was the gift that he came to bring. He's the one that is the bridge to cross the chasm that sin had wrought in our lives. This separated us from relationship with God. This sin brings death, pain, sadness, loss, anger, hate, suffering, selfishness. Everything that Yoda says in the movies about the dark side, that is sin. You know, uh, often movies steal a lot of themes from the Bible because that's where the, the best source material is. But all of this anger, hate, and suffering, that's a result of sin in our lives. But Jesus came to fix it. All of that was placed on his shoulders as he walked towards that cross. All of that was ultimately killed on the cross. But then Jesus rose again three days later. The victory isn't just in the death of Jesus, paying for the, the sin of death, or the, the consequence of sin, which is death. But it's that he rose again. That's where the hope comes from. That even if in our lives it feels like we're dying, even if we do die, even if we never see the realization of our hope this side of eternity, the hope is that there is yet another life after this. There is a resurrection. There is hope on the other side. And since the Garden of Eden, humanity had not experienced relationship with God as intimately as it did until Jesus came. People had, to, uh, people had the opportunity when Jesus came to walk alongside him, to smell him, to touch him, to hear his voice spoken like they had rarely ever seen before, to smell his odor, to hug him, to kiss him, to sit at his feet and learn from God, the Son of God, Jesus. That was his presence among us. I could only imagine 
You know, they always ask those questions. What could you do if you would time travel? Where would you go? And I, I think a lot of people would say, well, I'd love to go and see Jesus. But not on the cross before that, please. Because that would be horrific and hard to handle. But to just see Jesus, to be near him. There was a, a show, oh, now I'm going to, uh, Adventures in Odyssey. With uh, anyone that grew up listening to that, I didn't, but I've had the pleasure of marrying a wife who did, and so she likes to listen to them time to time. But in Adventures in Odyssey, there was a guy who created this uh, imagination station that you could actually go in, and you could go, he'd program it, and you can go back and see Jesus. You could actually go back and be near Jesus, in your imagination, obviously. But what a wonderful thing that would be. Could you imagine what it would be to be in the person and presence of Jesus, to be with him, to hear from him. That's what the disciples could have. That's what his followers, those who loved him, who had followed him around, who had given up everything, that's what they had in the form of Jesus. Now, imagine, if you will, what it would be like seeing that man that you loved, that you sacrificed for, dead. Hope just died. Hope would have been crushed. You would have thought, this is that king that was supposed to reign forever, and it's over. Three years, that's it? That's all we get? That's all we have? Three years. And they had to agonize over that for three days. But then I can also only imagine what it would have felt like to see him again. To see him victorious over death. To see him in person. To smell him again. To touch him. To touch the holes where the nails were in his hands. It would have been hard to believe and even harder to fathom and understand. Death had been defeated. It was something he talked about. It's something he had prepared for. But it's a different thing hearing it and experiencing it. The sheer joy and exaltation they must have had. I could, I could only imagine what that would be like. Now, imagine... A short time later, Jesus is saying, and now I'm leaving again. I have to go. What would that have felt like? Like, you just came back. They probably had an outcry. And the weird thing is, he says, it'll be better for you if I go. He says in John 16, 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good. They must have thought that was sarcasm. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus sends us the advocate. Uh, in other translations, it calls him the counselor or the helper. So who is he? Who is this advocate, this helper? I'll get to that in a second, but it is the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll talk to that in just a minute. But at the Christmas time, we celebrate Jesus' birth. But let's fast forward from his birth as a baby right to the very end of his life. And when he's come back and he's ascended, or he's about to ascend, at the very last words, this is his epitaph. This is the last thing that he wants to say. So it's very important. And it's something that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're probably familiar with. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Jesus is always with us. Now that must have seemed ironic because he was there. So they're thinking he's there in person and now he's saying he's always going to be with us as he leaves. But that presence is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, uh, an illustration of what it's like. Harrison, uh, when, she used to, when she was younger, and she would get upset uh, at whatever. She'd be emotional. She'd be a teenager. She would, uh, she would go, and uh, she had this metal fence behind her house that went onto this beautiful field. And she would go, and she would sit there, and she would cry and pray and be there. And she knew that no matter what, her dad would come eventually. And he would come, and he would sit beside her. He'd put his arm around her. He would kiss her. He would hug her. He'd listen to her. He'd probably pray with her. And she could rely on that. She said, no matter what, if I'm upset, my father will come to me, and he will love me. He'll put his arm around me. He'll understand. Now, no matter what, no matter how many times you fall short, no matter how many times in your relationship with God that you've messed up, that you've done something that you regret, You may run away and you may hide and you may cry, but you can be assured that your father will come and sit beside you. He'll put his arm around you and he'll say, I love you. I care for you. He'll wipe your tears away. He'll say, you don't have to be strong. I'm strong enough. Lean on me. That's the beautiful promise that we have, that God is with us. There's nothing that you could go through that would make your father run away from you. You can run away, sure. You can try and hide. But because Jesus died on the cross, there's nowhere too high that you can go and nowhere too low that he hasn't been. In the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into hell. Now, it may feel like it, but none of us are there today. None of us are in hell. So there's hope. And there's healing that can be found in Jesus. God is perfect and is never giving up, never failing, never running up, always and forever love is there for you today, if you would but accept it. His love is right there. But we do have our part to play. We have to walk with him in obedience. In John 14, 15, and 19, it says, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live you also will live. If you love me. If. It's a big if sometimes. How do you tell that somebody loves you? Is it because they say the right words? Or is it because they act on it? You know that your spouse, your friend, loves you because they they just tell you that they love you? Or do they show it? Do they prove it? by doing loving things for you. If you say you love God, then he says, keep his commands. Now notice that the love comes first. The obedience comes second. If you love God, you love him first, and then you follow in obedience. This is the opposite of religion. 
harsh legalism and religion would say, do these right things, these right steps, and if you do them well enough and often enough and in the right order and in the right way, then you will be accepted by God. But what Jesus says is, I love you. I died for you. I'm ready to forgive you. The only thing I ask is for you to love me in return. That's all it takes. It's a simple, I'm sorry, Jesus. And he's already there. He's already hugging you. He's already loving you. That's the beautiful gift of the gospel. Now, uh, raising a, raising a uh, well, she's almost five now, a daughter, sometimes uh, there's some hard, hard theological questions that Bible college should not prepare me for. One of the which is, if Jesus is alive, why can't I hug him right now? And trying to explain Jesus is here, but his body is in heaven, he's, his body isn't here right now, but he's alive, is very difficult for a five, well, four and a half year old to wrap their mind around. But I would argue it's hard for adults to wrap our mind around us too. That promise that Jesus is always with us, but it's hard because we can't see him, touch him, or feel him. But it's not actually true. There's this beautiful truth that if you love Jesus and you follow him, he has his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You can experience Jesus and the love of Jesus with Jesus followers around you. You can hug them. You can kiss them if they'll let you. You can smell them. You can touch them. And you can hear the Father's love through them. When Kerrison's dad would have her father put his arm around her, that was Jesus loving Kerrison through her father. That was the father's love that God had given him to love her. So if you are a follower of Jesus, keep his commands. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, love Jesus. Accept his love for you. He wants only good things for you. There's sometimes there are hard things. Sometimes they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but we can fear no evil because God is with us. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus is always with you. Everywhere we go, we take this promise and this Holy Spirit with us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Those people that are on the ground with Nazarene Compassionate Ministries as they're handing out water bottles, as they're digging through rubble, as they're helping people, they're being Jesus' presence to those who need it in that darkness. And we have dark places in our lives. We have dark places all around us as we walk around. And maybe we're the ones that need that hug from Jesus today. Maybe we just need to ask somebody. Maybe we just need to ask someone to pray for us. Now, do you ever feel like God has let you down? It might feel like that. God's there, and he cares, and he loves you. And you can cry out to him the depth of pain in your soul. You don't have to be good enough or holy enough for God to love you. He loves you because he loves you. Jesus still loves you no matter what you've done. You just have to ask to be forgiven. He didn't wait for you to be perfect because he was perfect. He didn't wait for you to love him because he loved you enough first. He didn't wait for you to run to you. Jesus ran to you. So Jesus' love is the message of Christmas, and it's the hope. 
and we just need to receive and accept that love and that gift, then we will be able to follow him in obedience. We will be able to follow him because he's working in us. We will be able to follow him because his Holy Spirit is inside of you. So what is the Lord speaking to you this morning? What is the Holy Spirit speaking in your life? Is there something you need to confess? Is there something that you need to do? Or do you just need to sit before Jesus and say, thank you, thank you for loving me? Sometimes in prayer, I like to journal, and I like to do A, and I write something, and then J, and ask God what he's speaking to me. And sometimes it's, a, it's I'm flipping through my Bible, and it's a verse he highlights. But one of my favorite things that I feel like he says to me is, I love you, my son. That phrase makes all the difference in the world some days. Just knowing that God loves me. And God loves you too, no matter what you're going through. So now would you join me in prayer as the uh, worship team comes forward and helps us to, uh, to celebrate God's love through worship music. Jesus, you are so awesome. You are mighty and strong, and you love us more than we can imagine. So I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you for the hope that can be found in you and you alone. And I thank you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in and among each person here. Whether they're, they're running away in their disobedience, whether they don't yet know you, or whether they've known you for so long and are following you well, or anything in the spectrum in between, Jesus. We need your love to help us to accept you and to love you in return. In your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.